Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm Lori Boyer. Today, my guest is Christine Tegrin. She is the director for the Center for Agriculture Law and Taxation at Iowa State University. And today, we will go over some important points when it comes to agricultural taxes, as it is time to start preparation for tax season. Christine, can you start off by telling us more about the Center for Agriculture Law and Taxation at Iowa State University and what you do there? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Lori. This is a great opportunity just to talk to people out there about taxes, which is something I really enjoy talking about. So I am the director here at Iowa State University of kind of a unique center that we have. It's called the Center for Agricultural Law and Taxation. And the purpose of our center is to really let people know new things that are happening in agricultural law as well as in tax. And so it's my job to keep up on that. We educate a lot of professionals as well. We talk to CPAs and attorneys and accountants and things to try to keep them abreast of the new laws, but we really enjoy our work with farmers. We're also in charge of the Beginning Farmer Center here at Iowa State University, so we really do try to keep people abreast of changes with respect to farm transition planning. There's a lot of tax provisions that apply, but also just a lot of other issues for new farmers who want to get into the field. How do we do that? How do we transition? So yes, that is the work that we do here. Thank you for that information, Christine. And as we get started with our conversation here today, tax season is right around the corner. What should farmers be considering when preparing for taxes? Well, it's just like every year, Lori. The big thing is we are only required to pay the taxes that we're legally required to pay. So the big thing is how do we use the tax code as it exists to pay the least amount of tax possible? And one of the biggest planning tools that we have is that we have this graduated tax system where the more income we earn in a particular year, we jump up into new tax brackets every time we cross over into a new income level, and then that income is taxed at a higher amount. So one of the ways that we try to keep our tax obligations lower is to try to manage those tax brackets, to try to level out our income from year to year, to try to avoid spikes. Because if I have a giant spike one year, I might end up in the highest tax bracket of 37%. Whereas if I can try to keep that tax level, the income level, then I will more likely stay in a more reasonable tax bracket of the highest one, perhaps being 24%. So a lot of this is just about managing brackets. And there's lots of ways to do that, right? Sometimes we say, well, I will buy the equipment this year and take an accelerated deduction. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but that might be one way to lower your income. Or maybe I need more income this year and would prefer to have it this year instead of next year. That sounds counterintuitive. Most farmers are like, I want the lowest amount of income possible this year. But one of the things we'll talk about today is the fact that tax rates might potentially be going up in a couple of years. 
years. So how do we manage things for the long term? So there's a lot of decisions like that that just staying up to date on what the laws are today, but also where they're going is really important for farmers to work with their tax professionals to sort of make long term plans, not just do what they've always done or make decisions just based upon what their neighbor is doing. It's all going to be based upon their specific operation, the needs of that operation in the next couple of years and long term, as well as the current needs for cash flow and things like that now. You know, you brought up a really good point is that you're not just necessarily thinking about this particular year. You have to kind of plan for the next two to three years and what you're doing now. Right. And even beyond that, Lori, really two of the most important tools that farmers use and have at their disposal when we're talking about purchasing assets, because we all know, I mean, farming is an asset intensive field, right? It's uh, an industry that requires big equipment, costly equipment, big buildings, costly buildings. All of that is very expensive. And so some of the tools that we have to manage those purchases are ways that we can have accelerated cost recovery, which basically means we can take larger deductions in the year we purchase that equipment or we purchase that building and put it into service if we so choose. Or we also sometimes forget that we don't have to take advantage of that. And we'll talk about those tools. They're called Section 179 and bonus depreciation. But sometimes it's better not to use those tools. Sometimes it's better to stretch out your deductions over a longer period of time if looking ahead you think that you might have more income or the tax rates might be higher and you might benefit from the deductions over the long term instead of just taking advantage of them right now. So it really is sort of a precision evaluation that you have to say, what is the best thing for my operation today and long-term. Christine, let's elaborate more on these two tax tools. Let's start off with section 179. Can you tell us more about what it is and how to use it? That is an expense method deduction. And so it applies to most of the farming assets that we purchase. The assets can be used, they can be new. The only thing it really doesn't apply to is a farm building, a multi-purpose farm building. So if I put up a big machine shed, I can't use section 179, but I can use it for my equipment. I can use it even for my single purpose buildings like my hog barns, my poultry barns, as long as I'm only using those buildings for raising those animals, then I can write the whole cost of that barn off the year I put it into service using section 179. But there are some limits. So, for example, this year, what it means is that if I purchase some tractors or combine and maybe I put up a building, I have a $1.16 million Section 179 deduction that I can take this year if it works, right? If I have enough income to offset that and everything, I can use Section 179 for that amount. 
if I exceed $2.89 million of assets that I place into service, all of a sudden my ability to take 179 phases out. So there are some limits. And I will say this is the first year I've had multiple tax professionals call me and say, I have some clients that are actually phasing out of the section 179. Why? Because equipment is really expensive. These assets are very expensive and it's going to look at how many assets did I place in service. The other thing that's been interesting, now this has been in place since 2018, but we have what's called like-kind exchange for real property, right? If I want to trade a, a farm field for a commercial building, I can do that and I won't have to pay tax when I do the trade. We used to have that in 2017 and before for trading equipment, right? So I'd buy a tractor instead of selling my old tractor and buying my new tractor, I would just trade my old tractor and get the new tractor. And what that meant was that the amount of depreciation I'd taken on my old tractor would just roll into the new tractor and I didn't have to pay tax on the recapture, it's called. Because if you take depreciation and then you sell that item, you have to pay tax, ordinary income tax, on the gain that you get because you've already written that off. So that's been an interesting thing since 2018. We don't have that like-kind exchange. So that has meant every time a farmer trades a tractor for a tractor, the farmer has a sale for which you have to pay all this tax on the gain at ordinary income tax rates. And then you have a purchase, which means that you can write that cost off using Section 179. We're going to talk about bonus depreciation in a minute, but those things usually balance out. But again, it's just more complex, more decisions to make. So section 179 is really sort of the favored method for a lot of farmers. Why? Because it's very flexible. I can take it for as much or as little as I want, as long as I don't exceed the limits. So that means that if I buy a tractor for $200,000, I can expense 50,000 of it if I want to. And if that helps my tax planning. So you can kind of see it's a precision tool. Also, if I decide that I should have made a different decision and I shouldn't have taken that $50,000 expense deduction, I can file an amended return later, change my mind, and revoke that election. So Section 179 is flexible. Christine, that being said, what about bonus depreciation? How does it work and how is it different than Section 179? The other accelerated tool that we have for taking a lot of depreciation all at once is bonus depreciation. And that's often called additional first year depreciation. So with bonus depreciation, that is not expense method. It is all right, whatever depreciation I would take over the lifetime, I'm going to get to take in the first year I place the item into service, depending on what percentage we're allowed to depreciate that year. Now, that sounds confusing, but since the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2018, we have been in 100% bonus depreciation realm. What does that mean? It meant last year in 2022, if I bought a tractor, I could write 100% of the cost of that off using bonus depreciation. 
Also, bonus depreciation applies to farm buildings. I said Section 179 doesn't. But last year, in 2022, if I put up a multi-purpose farm building, I would have gotten to write off 100% of that using bonus depreciation in the year I placed that into service. Now, I said last year because bonus depreciation has started to phase out. 2023, and when you're filing your tax returns and anything you placed into service, you're only allowed to depreciate immediately in the first year 80% of the basis of that item. What does that mean? Well, if I purchase a $100,000 piece of equipment, I can write off $80,000 of it using bonus. So compared to 2022, $100,000 could have been written off. Now, Christine, what about changes for bonus depreciation in 2024? When we get to January 1st of 2024, bonus is going down even more. It's going to be at 60% of basis. And so this is one of those items that there are proposals in Congress to say, hey, maybe we should restore 100% bonus depreciation. We'll see what happens. I don't see anything moving forward before the end of the year, but perhaps in the new year, there might be some legislation that's taken up. But those are the two most important accelerated cost recovery tools we have, Section 179 and bonus depreciation. And because bonus depreciation is phasing out, I really think it makes Section 179 even more important. Now, one other thing, you can combine those two tools And if you do that, just to know, Section 179 comes first, and then you take the 80% bonus depreciation deduction. And then because you'll always have some basis left over, because it's not 100% bonus, the remaining depreciation you will take over the life of that asset. Now, I will tell you one more thing about bonus depreciation, and that is it's not nearly as flexible as Section 179. You either elect out, so it's actually an automatic thing. If you're just filing a tax return and you don't elect out of bonus, guess what? You're in it unless you make a special election out. But once you've made that election out or you haven't made the election out, you're kind of stuck with that decision because you cannot change your mind on an amended return except within a very narrow window of six months. That's very different than Section 179. And also, you have to either elect out or stay in for every single asset within a particular class. So if I buy new equipment, that means that every item of equipment has to be treated the same using bonus depreciation. Unlike Section 179, where I could take 50000 for the tractor and I could say, I don't want to take anything extra on my planter. So they're very different tools with very different rules, but the same overall purpose, which is to take the deduction now instead of spread it out. Thank you, Christine, for that information. That is a lot, and you did a good job explaining it. So I appreciate that very much. Another question, what about new beneficial ownership information? Can you speak more on that? Well, there is something brand new coming down the road that a lot of people may not have heard about. Now, I will say this only applies to farmers who have 
entities that they created by going to the Secretary of State's office or a similar office if you're in a state that has just a business office. And so this would include if you created an LLC for your business, if you created a corporation for your business, if you created a limited partnership for your business, anything that you had to file paperwork with the state office to create is going to be subject to these new beneficial ownership information reporting requirements. And your eyes might glaze over and you might think, well, I'm a small farmer. It won't apply to me. Forget about it. No, that's who these rules apply to. Because Congress passed this law It went into effect really in 21, but the rules haven't come out. And so it's actually going to be implemented in 2024 for the first time. But the purpose of the law is to fight financial crime. It's to fight people who hide their money in little shell corporations and things like that. So we're all opposed to like financial crimes, right? But the way Congress decided to go after this is we need to know who owns all of these entities. Now with big entities, they already know because big entities, banks, insurance companies, giant accounting firms, things like that, they're already subject to reporting requirements. Small entities aren't. So it's possible I can have an LLC and nobody knows who owns it, including the government. So what this reporting requirement is for is not for the public. This information will not be disclosed to the public. This information is for the government to know so that if they suspect or come across evidence of financial crimes, they will actually know who the owners of these entities are. So bottom line, what it requires is if I'm a single member LLC. So people might think, well, my accountant has told me single member LLCs are disregarded They are disregarded for tax purposes. They're not disregarded for the new beneficial ownership information reports. So if I have a single member LLC, if I have an S corporation where I'm the sole owner, I'm still subject to these reports. And so the agency that's responsible for this is called FinCEN and it's Bureau of the U.S. Treasury. So it's kind of a sister organization to the IRS. So this is not a tax provision. It is a reporting provision. But if I have an entity right now that I've already formed, I will have until January 1st of 2025 to go online to the FinCEN website through an online portal and type out some information about my company. It will include my taxpayer ID number of my company, the name of my company, as well as the name and personal information of all of the beneficial owners. Now, we're not going to go into detail, but just at a high level, I'll tell you who beneficial owners are under the rules. It's anybody who, under a facts and circumstances test, has substantial control over the company. So any officers, directors, anybody who's making important decisions about the company, the rules consider those people to be beneficial owners. Also, if I own 25% or more of the entity, I'm a beneficial owner. So what has to be reported by the reporting company is the company information, but then for every beneficial owner, you have to report their name, you have to report their address, and then they have to upload a copy of a driver's license or a passport. And that information has to be logged into this FinCEN system. 
And if you are already existing, as I said, you have until January 1st of 2025 to make your first report. If anything changes, though, if somebody dies and you get a new beneficial owner, you have 30 days from the time the estate was settled to make a new report. If your address changes, you have 30 days to make a new report. Now, for new entities that are just going to be forming in 2024, they're going to have 90 days to make their first report after the state says, you're good, you're a new entity. In 2025, they'll only have 30 days to make their first report. So this is a pretty significant new rule that's estimated to impact more than 32 million entities. And so the biggest thing is just getting the word out. Now, I will say, if any of your listeners has questions, they should talk to their legal counsel that set up the entity for them. That's really the first place they should check if they want help with these reports. In a lot of cases, you know, you might go to your accountant or your tax professional for advice, but there's a question about whether actually helping clients with that might be the practice of law. So the best place to start with questions about this is the legal counsel that helped them form the entity in the first place. I know oftentimes farmers and ranchers use contract laborers, which require 1099 forms. So, Christine, can you talk more about what we need to know when it comes to contract laborers with regard to taxes? There are a couple of new changes in the regulations area that are important. So a lot of farmers do have to file what's called 1099s. That is, if you hire an independent contractor, somebody sprays your ground for you, something like that, you have to issue a 1099. So a lot of farmers are used to doing this. The rules changed come January of 2024, where you have to file these things electronically if you file 10 or more. And so a lot of your listeners might have 10 or more 1099s that they are filing. I mean, they have to file this for $600 or more of payments that are made. So quite a few people will file 10 or more information returns. If they do, the IRS will not be accepting the paper return. You do have to file electronically. And I will tell folks that if they have questions about that, they can talk to their tax professional, but they can also go online to the IRS. And IRS has a new online portal that's free to use. It's called the IRIS system. And it's designed specifically to be able to create an account, go online and do your 1099s electronically using IRIS. So I just wanted to let people know that was an option for them, but also just to alert them to that new requirement because that's important. Christine, what else would you like to mention here today? Another thing I want to put on people's radar is there has been a really large amount of fraud in the last year and a half stemming from something that's called the employee retention credit. Now, the employee retention credit was a valid tax credit, so I don't want to worry anybody out there that went to a reputable tax professional and as part of their regular tax planning, the tax professional said, hey, yeah, your gross receipts were down in 2021 as compared to 2019. You qualify for this tax credit. That was all well and good. 
But what's been happening is these third-party companies have been actually reaching out and soliciting people, including farmers, to say, you might qualify for this credit, which is up to $26,000 per employee. And what's happened is they have used improper applications of the law and farmers included have gotten sucked into this scheme that they have. And the big red flag is if somebody approached you for a big contingency fee and said that you qualified for the employee retention credit for every single quarter that it was available and you qualified under something called supply chain issues that's probably not a valid claim. And I'm saying this because right now the IRS has opened up a window where there's sort of a take it back and you won't be penalized period where if you haven't yet been paid for your ERC claim, you can withdraw it and you can withdraw it without penalty and you will not have any consequence at all from having filed the claim that was invalid. Now, for those farmers who may have gotten pulled into filing these claims and now realize, oh, it was a supply chain claim, this might not be valid. And if you have any question, go talk to a reputable tax professional, like someone that's not just doing ERC credits only, and they can help you determine but the IRS has said there will be a program made available where they will allow some compromise of these claims, where farmers who might have gotten paid for claims that were invalid might have a window to repay the claim, and maybe they won't be subject to the same penalties and interest and things that they will be if they do nothing and later on get audited, that could be a bad situation. So we're just kind of letting people know that they need to watch for that if you're in that situation, just kind of highlighting that. And also just highlighting in general, the fact that farmers are often big targets for fraud. There are schemes kind of being peddled out there in the marketplace and why farmers? Because they have a lot of land, they have a lot of appreciated assets, and there are tax schemes that sound too good to be true that these advisors will tell you, these work, you won't have to pay any tax, you can get out of farming, you can sell everything, and you won't ever have to pay any tax. Just know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, and go talk to, again, a trusted tax professional before you sign anything to get involved in one of these fraudulent transactions. They can seem very real. The people that approach the farmers have lots of letters after their name. But usually the hallmark is if somebody contacts you about a tax savings device, you probably need to be a little bit suspect. Um, and then you need to go ask a trusted advisor because these people usually take large contingency fees, large fees for the work they're doing. So they're making a lot of money on selling these techniques. So something else to watch for. Another question I thought about here today, Christina, is what about healthcare and taxes? Healthcare can be a huge part of the bottom line cost to farm families because in a lot of cases, they're self-employed, right? They don't have an employer that's providing the healthcare. And so there have been some new regulations that were put into effect this year that have made more families across America eligible for tax credits 
if they purchase insurance on what's called the healthcare marketplace. And so farm families who may never have been eligible before may be now eligible. And, and let me just give you one example. What the regulations did is they got rid of something called the family glitch. So you are not eligible for a tax credit if you're offered affordable insurance from an employer. And the way that in the past, since the Affordable Care Act went into effect, the way that they've determined whether or not this employer-provided coverage was affordable was just looking at how much it would cost to cover the employee themselves. So simple example, I'm a farm family. I am the farmer. My spouse works maybe for a school district. The school district offers uh, my spouse coverage for $100 a month. Well, that's affordable, right? That that doesn't cost that much. And, and affordability for 2023 is anything that's not going to cost you more than 9.12% of your household income. To cover my family, though, to cover me, to cover my kids, to cover the rest of the family, the school district says, oh, yeah, we offer that coverage, but you're going to have to pay $2,400 a month to get that coverage. Well, well, that's not affordable, right, to my family. But the old regulations said, oh, you were offered affordable employer coverage because it only cost your husband $100 a month to get that coverage. Well, that didn't make sense, but that's the way the rules were for all these years. This year, the rules are different. This year, we actually get to look at how much it would cost to cover the family. And we get to say, oh, that would cost you 30% of your household income to add that extra coverage for your family. So guess what? Your family members are eligible to go on the marketplace and you can get a premium tax credit, which will make up the difference. And in some cases, these premium tax credits, they will usually mean maybe I have to outlay $10,000 a year for my coverage, but the premium tax credit is going to pay the additional $25,000. So they can be very significant in terms of making health care available. To a, to a different population of people. So I just wanted everybody to kind of know that that change had, had taken place. As we wrap up here today, I want to say thank you to my guest, Christine Tigrin, Director for the Center for Agriculture Law and Taxation at Iowa State University. And thank you for listening. For Successful Farming, I'm Lori Boyer.